It's just after 9am on March 29, 2023. In the Ontario Provincial Legislature in Toronto, leaders from five First Nations have called a news conference. They tell a small group of reporters they want to meet with Premier Doug Ford. They want the Ontario government to stop approving development without getting their consent. Sitting in front of the studio's dark backdrop that morning is a who's who of Indigenous-led resistance leaders. There's Alvin Fiddler, former chief of the Anishinaabeaski Nation. Rudy Turtle, a member and former chief of Grassy Narrows First Nation who participated in blockades that halted logging in their forest in northern Ontario. And there's Cecilia Begg, head counselor of the Kitchenamekusib and Inuwag First Nation, and one of the KI-6 who served jail time after they blockaded mining activity near Big Trout Lake. Also at the table are Nishkandiga First Nation Chief Wayne Munius and Chief-elect Chris Munius. Until such time we provide our free prior informed consent to these plans and developments that are happening in our traditional homelands, they will not be. They will not be. The government of Ontario, the government of Canada, the industry, you will not cross the river system. You will not build a road into the ring of fire until you get the free pride for consent of our people. That is the position of our community. Wayne Munia says Ontario needs to consult members of Nishkandiga First Nation before it can let mining companies keep working in the ring of fire. Later that day, the visitors would sit in on the provincial legislature and make sure the premier knew they were there. To refrain from this outburst, or you'll be asked to leave. For more than a decade, leaders of all three of Ontario's top parties have vowed to open the Ring of Fire up to mining. And for just as long, some First Nations leaders, like Wayne and Chris, have wanted Ontario to get First Nations free, prior, and informed consent before acting. Ontario has a constitutional duty to consult First Nations. But nobody can agree exactly what consultation looks like. And it's defined political debate around the Ring of Fire in the provincial legislature for the past four years. Now, as the Ontario government renews its push to mine the Ring of Fire, and the federal government implements international law on the rights of Indigenous peoples, the calls are growing louder for Ontario to get the free, prior, and informed consent of all First Nations near the Ring of Fire. This podcast is called The Road. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Funding for this podcast comes from the Gordon Sinclair Foundation. I'm Isaac Ponnet, and you're listening to Episode 4, Bulldozer. For more than 13 years, Ontario has been keen to help companies mine the Ring of Fire, a region about 500 kilometers north of Thunder Bay. In his throne speech in 2010, then-Premier of Ontario Dalton McGuinty called the project, quote, the most promising mining opportunity in Canada in a century. His successor, Kathleen Wynne, takes up the push, 
In 2013, Ontario's budget says it will build infrastructure to open the region to development. The Ring of Fire region falls on land covered by Treaty 9, an agreement between the Crown and several First Nations on so-called Northern Ontario to share its lands and resources. Its signatories include many First Nations represented by the Mattawa Council, a chief's council that represents nine Northern Ontario First Nations like Webekwe, Iabmatung, and Nishkandiga First Nations. And Ontario has a legal obligation to consult First Nations about development under Section 35 of the Constitution Act. So Section 35 really just like kind of recognizes and affirms that Aboriginal treaty rights exist. My name's Dana Scott. I'm a professor. I'm cross-appointed between the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University and the Osgoode Hall Law School. She's been researching Indigenous resistance to resource extraction in the Ring of Fire. It raises really difficult questions about the overlapping territories and the kind of clash of rights, the sovereignty of a community like Martin Falls to, to get approval for the road that it wants, and the sovereignty of a community like Nishtantica that wants to have their homelands not crossed by that road. Section 35 means the province has a constitutional obligation to uphold the treaties, listen to concerns raised by Indigenous peoples, and determine how to address them. But what that actually looks like has been the subject of legal debate in Canada for years. And the courts have taken on the task of interpreting what recognizing and respecting Indigenous treaty rights means. And while what's needed to meet Section 35 is vague, Scott says legal precedents have created some rules. There have been numerous court statements saying that the governments do have to listen. <laughs> it's more than just a note-taking, and it's more than just a check mark or whatever. But, you know, there, there are other court statements saying, like, it, it can't go on interminably, or, you know, like, both sides have to participate in good faith. So to meet its duty to consult, the Ontario government started talking to the nine Matawa First Nations about developing the Ring of Fire. In 2013, Ontario and the First Nations sign a regional framework agreement. That's an agreement to come to the table and start talking about getting an environmental assessment going. Former Supreme Court Justice Frank Iacobucci is appointed to represent Ontario. And former Ontario Premier and Liberal Party interim leader Bob Ray helps the Mottawa Council as their chief negotiator. Well, we've had a productive beginning. It's just we're, we're going to work, try to work quickly on a terms of reference. That's to say, what are we talking about here? What are we actually going to be negotiating? Uh, and I hope we can get that done fairly soon. That was Ray on a 2013 episode of CBC's Power and Politics. The same year, Premier Wynne tells reporters she sat down with Prime Minister Stephen Harper to ask Ottawa to help fund a road to the Ring of Fire. Uh, the Prime Minister had spoken before about his understanding of uh, the need for public infrastructure in, uh, in the development of the, uh, the Ring of Fire and that chromite deposit. He and I had never had that conversation previously, and so I think that is uh, that's some progress. Did we get commitments on particular investments? No. But, uh, you know, the fact is that we have now got the, uh, the ability to follow up in a, a few months. By the time the Ontario election rolls around, the Ring of Fire is already a major topic of discussion. In May of 2014, Liberal leader Wynne and NDP leader Andrea Horwath 
Head to the Valhalla Inn in Thunder Bay for a special Northern Ontario election debate. Progressive Conservative leader Tim Hudak doesn't attend. Dozens of protesters surround the inn with signs messaging against wind turbine development and poverty. Inside, despite their party differences, Wynne and Horvath both promised to open up the Ring of Fire. Well, let me just say that the, uh, the Ring of Fire is a national project that is as, at least as important as the oil sands in Alberta. And so That's Kathleen Wynne. We have committed a billion dollars, with or without the Harper government. We, we do need a federal partner to, uh, to develop the Ring of Fire in the same way that the federal government has worked in the oil sands. But we're going to Horvath make makes the same commitment. That is because there is no confidence in the Liberals to get it right in the ring of fire. The investment has to come right away. The discussions around opening up the corridor, deciding which corridor we're going to utilize and which mode of transportation we're going to utilize needs to happen quickly. Wynne wins the election, and in 2014, Ontario's budget includes a billion-dollar commitment to build a road to the ring of fire. But there's a catch. Ontario will only spend that money if the federal government matches it. So Ontario's mining minister sends letters to the federal government asking for money. But in 2014, then-federal natural resources minister Greg Rickford tells the CBC that Ontario needs a more detailed description of what the road will look like. A year later, Rickford launches a study into an east-west road to the region. But that study is inconclusive. Negotiations with the Mattawa First Nations are breaking down. The plan for a road is going nowhere. Wynne sends a letter to the Mattawa First Nations saying she has not seen enough progress on the negotiations and that she's ready to keep talking with First Nations that want to pursue a road. That's what she does. Come summer, Ontario announces it's working with Martin Falls, Webekwe, and Nibinamic First Nations to build an all-season road to the region. And then, election time rolls around again. I've been up in the north more than I've been anywhere in Ontario. I love the people of the north. I'm listening to them. Progressive conservative leader and soon-to-be premier Doug Ford says he'll pick up the plan when dropped. He wants to make it clear that he's going to push mining in northern Ontario. In a tweet, Ford says, quote, If I have to hop on a bulldozer myself, we're going to start building roads to the Ring of Fire. Then, at a leaders' debate in Perry Sound, We're going to work with the people of the North. We're going to work with the First Nations. We're going to respect the treaties that are in place right now. But we aren't going to talk. We're going to get in there after everyone agrees. We're going to go in there and start mining. My dad always used to say, you have a gold mine, let's start mining. We have a gold mine with minerals up there, but it's just talk. And when he's elected, a new cast of conservative politicians take over the push to build a road to the Ring of Fire. Kenora Rainy River MPP Greg Rickford takes on two portfolios, Indigenous Affairs and Northern Development. That's the same Greg Rickford we heard from earlier, who served as the Federal Minister of Natural Resources. Then, in 2017, Rickford briefly served on the Board of Directors of Norant Resources, that's the junior mining company that triggered the rush on the Ring of Fire, and at this point, owns most of the mining claims in the region. Rickford stepped down from the board before running for provincial office. Ford, 
The provincial mines minister and the provincial transportation minister are all responsible for some aspect of making the Ring of Fire a reality. But Rickford's double portfolio means he's responsible for ensuring Ontario meets its duty to consult First Nations. It's Rickford who's called to answer for former Premier Wynne's negotiation tactics. At a Chiefs of Ontario meeting in Barrie in 2018, Chiefs of the Matawa First Nations spoke directly to Rickford about their concerns that the Ontario government pursued agreements with three of the nine First Nations who seemed ready to start building a road. Here's Iabmatung First Nation Chief Elizabeth Atlikin. Because I can get to meet with you of uh, requested meetings. I haven't heard uh, zilch from you. And I don't think Iabmatung has ever said no to development. We said a balanced joint decision making because it's going to forever change the, the landscape of where we're from. So again, Minister, I'm asking when will you meet with Yamatung? I have written to you and as well as the Matawa chiefs have written to you. I seem to hear that you have met with a whole host of other nations. You know, they said because two nations decided to build roads, that you leave the rest of us out of the equation? I don't think that's fair. Again, it has to be joint decision-making, and it must be balanced. And here's Chief of Nishkandiga First Nation, Wayne Munius. How does your government going to treat our First Nations, even though we may not be on the... Uh, on the train in terms of developing these, uh, these roads or these infrastructure plans that you're talking about because all we've been hearing is about economic development, economic prosperity in our region and yet our First Nation is not, uh, has not been contacted, has not been involved in terms of how, how our consent is going to be uh, given to these projects. Yeah. It's very critical. It's here that Munius brings up the issue of consent to development. Free, prior, and informed consent is a key phrase in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, or UNDRIP, a framework adopted by the UN in 2007 that outlines the minimum standard for the survival and well-being of Indigenous peoples across the world. UNDRIP states that Indigenous peoples have the right to conserve and protect the environment on their land. And the declaration says governments need to consult with indigenous peoples and get their free and informed consent before approving projects that would affect their land. The UNDRIP bar is way higher than the current Canadian jurisprudential bar for duty to consult and accommodate. That's law professor Scott again. Until UNDRIP is implemented in Ontario, the Crown has to pay attention to the Constitution's Section 35. Even the most meaningful consultation done under the duty to consult and accommodate does not meet the free prior and informed consent standard in international law, and it does not meet this kind of like co-jurisdiction standard that the Treaty 9 nations want. In the summer of 2021, Today I am pleased that we are moving forward on those vital calls to action and calls for justice. Together we are continuing to walk the path of reconciliation. Canada passes UNDRIP into law. That was Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett. That doesn't mean that provinces have to follow UNDRIP. New Democrat MPP Sol Mamakwa has brought a bill to Ontario to adopt UNDRIP and make sure the province's laws are consistent with the declaration. But that never passed, and to this day, it's still not the law of Ontario. The province 
does not have laws that explicitly require the free, prior, and informed consent of Indigenous peoples before developing on their land. And as the COVID-19 pandemic surged through Ontario, the provincial government decided to change how it wanted to meet its constitutional duty to consult First Nations about the Ring of Fire. It creates an online system for filing mining claims, which means prospectors can stake claims to the land without ever leaving a desk. In the summer of 2019, the Ontario government ends its agreement with the Matawa First Nations, the agreement that brought Ontario and the nine First Nations to the table to negotiate the Ring of Fire. Rickford tells the Canadian press that progress on the project was met with delay after delay, and the Ford government will work with First Nations that are willing. The Canadian press reports that Ontario's ripping up the regional framework agreement. Then, in 2020, the Ford government announces it will start environmental assessments for roads to the Ring of Fire. By now, the roads are split into three separate projects, and the Ford government works directly with Martin Falls and Webequay First Nations to build the roads. The government decides that the other First Nations can continue to voice their concerns through environmental assessments on the project, which don't require ministers to meet with members of the other nations in person. Most quote-unquote consultation has happened through, through the road EAs. Now, there are six active environmental assessments underway for projects in the Ring of Fire. The provincial government has an assessment for each of the three road projects. So does the federal government. Martin Falls and Webequay First Nations are proponents of the roads. That means that they set the terms on how to lead these assessments without the co-leadership of other Matawa First Nations, who were consulted as equals almost a decade earlier. Now, the other First Nations are expected to express their concerns about development by commenting on these environmental assessments, which Professor Scott says happens on paperwork and online. You know, the way consultation on resource projects happens now is much more like a person that works in the band office receives a big huge PDF by email, and they're meant to somehow then reply to it with the community's quote-unquote concerns. And that just isn't how some First Nations want to exercise jurisdiction over their land. Many of the communities in Treaty 9 reject the model of consultation that the settler state wants to impose. Scott says that process doesn't meet the bar of free, prior, and informed consent. In Nishantika, the protocols are for oral decision-making, and so they, they prefer to gather the community members in person, to speak in the language, to have elders present and knowledge users and etc., and for everyone to, to discuss freely for however long it takes and to come to a consensus about how the community should move forward. That is how I, I have heard them describe their decision-making processes. So if communities have a right to free prior and informed consent, then the kinds of consultations that are ongoing now, which don't give them a, a right to say no to projects that they don't support for their territory, then those consultations are going to be rejected by those communities. And that's what we're seeing play out in Treaty 9 now. That might mean that nations choose not to participate in consultations and make submissions to environmental assessments. When communities believe they have a right to co-jurisdiction or they have a right to free prone informed consent in relation to decisions taken on their homelands, they're not going to participate in the Crown's kind of very weak consultations. Now, they're not going to spend their time towards sitting down and, and telling things to the Crown so it can check a box and say it consulted with a First Nation before making a decision. 
Martin Falls and Webequay First Nations submitted the rules that outline how these assessments will be completed. In March, Ontario approved those rules. Here's Premier Ford speaking about the partnership. And we're working side by side with our Indigenous partners to ensure that communities around the Ring of Fire have access to the roads needed, not only to support development, but also to improve access to everyday essentials like fuel, groceries, and healthcare. And shortly after, Federal Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gilbeau has said that Ottawa will start yet another assessment that looks at the whole Ring of Fire region. It won't affect the assessments already underway for the road, but Scott says this assessment could bring UNDRIP into the equation. It's probably the best chance of like getting close to that model. Which brings us back to where we started this episode, back at that March 29th news conference. Chief Chris Munius of Nishkanaga First Nation tells reporters, There hasn't been any government official, Ontario official, that has stepped in Nishkanaga for the past several years. Consultation happens in the community, in our, in our language that we understand. Then, the delegation of leaders from five First Nations head into the legislature. From the gallery, that's a mezzanine overlooking the house, Chris and Wayne Munius watch question period. New funding, new money over the next three years for health care, Mr. Speaker. Why don't you, why don't you MLA Sol Mamakwa is sitting in the front row on the opposition's half of the auditorium. He's the MPP for Kiwetanug. That's the riding that includes many Ring of Fire First Nations, like Webequay and Nishkandiga First Nations. He's wearing a dark blue checked suit and a colorful necklace featuring a fish. And after a brief debate about the budget, it's Mamakwa's time to speak. The next question, the member for uh, Good morning. My question is to the Premier. This government has granted thousands of mining claims on treaty territory and is trying to fast-track dangerous projects against the will of the people who live there, eat the fish, and drink the water. Look in the gallery, and you will see leadership and over 80 rights holders of five First Nations who are here to stand up for their homelands. Speaker, uh, will this government commit today to obtain the consent of First Nations before making any plans for their homelands? Northern Development and Indigenous Affairs Minister Greg Rickford mentions meetings with the Chiefs of Ontario and the revenue-sharing agreements that Ontario pursued with two of the nine Mottawa First Nations. Supported Many, if not most, of the communities that are represented here today, I've had a special opportunity to live in or work in and or work for, Mr. Speaker, and I can tell you, they all want better infrastructure. They all... Uh, for the most part, want road access to improve the health, social, and economic opportunities for their communities. That's what a provincial government does, Mr. Speaker. We create the platforms for these kinds of Response. resource activities to advance responsibly and safely, at the same time creating new opportunities, real opportunities for isolated communities that their members are asking me for every single day, Mr. Speaker. Thank you very much. And that's it. Six minutes of debate after the delegation of First Nations leadership traveled more than a thousand kilometers to Toronto to be heard by the provincial government. It's New Democrat MPP Joel Harden's turn to speak, and he gets up. Thank you, Speaker. My question is for the Premier. This, 
At the sound of Chris's voice, Hardin sits down. That's Chris and Wayne Munius shouting down to the floor of the legislature, breaking the rules. The public is not supposed to speak and definitely not shout. I would ask our guests who are in the gallery to refrain, to refrain from Chris and Wayne are ordered out of the legislature. Sitting us in the legislature, that there could be no outbursts from the galleries, or we wouldn't be able to um, comport ourselves in, in the way that we need to to do our business. They did not get an audience with Doug Ford. About a month later, it's April of 2023. Members of provincial parliaments all gather in Queen's Park in the legislature for their last sitting of the week. And after the members make their statements, it's time for question period. Thank you. The next question, the member for... Mamakwa stands to ask his question. Miigwech, uh, good morning, uh, Speaker. Uh, my question is to the Premier. Ontario is allowing mining claims across Treaty 9 territory that affect the rights and interests of First Nations without their free, prior, and informed consent. Why is Ontario undermining Niskanaga's rights and interests in their own territories? It's Rickford who answers. We take our Section 35 responsibilities right, uh, uh, seriously with respect to the duty to consult, Mr. Speaker. We'll continue to engage and work with communities, build consensus to provide an opportunity for a better life for people in Indigenous communities across Northern Ontario. Remember, Section 35 is part of the Constitution Act that makes provincial governments consult Indigenous peoples before development. Niskanaga and other affected nations have not given, again, their free, prior, and informed consent to what this government is doing in Treaty 9 territory. Once again, Mamakwa brings up free, prior, and informed consent, warding from UNDRIP, which Ontario has not implemented. Rickford calls it FPIC for short. Structure in Northern Ontario. Mr. Speaker, he quotes FPIC here. There's been a lot of discussion about it. Fair enough, Mr. Speaker. It's not the law of Ontario. However, we have built consensus into the far north. Speaker, we continue to work with Indigenous communities. It just can't be that one community wants consent and the others want a project to proceed, Mr. Speaker. That begs us to... Rickford says it's not the law of Ontario to get the free, prior and informed consent of Indigenous peoples before developing on their land. Next time on the road. What do we want? When do we want it? Now! Niskandiga First Nation leadership makes good on their promise. No ring of fire! No ring of fire! No ring of fire! No ring of fire! This podcast is reported, written, and produced by me. Isaac Panay. 
It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Funding for this podcast comes from the Gordon Sinclair Foundation. Story editing by Sandra Bartlett and Zara Kozema, with sound effects from Pixabay. If you think other people should find us, leave a comment and a five-star rating. It would really help us out. And our theme song is Gravel and Grit by Northern Points.